This is Mormon Awakenings. Please email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com. Life is a river, or so they say. The proverbial they. We're never quite sure who the proverbial they are exactly. But they say that. They say life's a river. And while we travel on this river of life, we have but two choices. This is what they say. I'm not saying this. This is what the proverbial they are saying. Life is a river, and given that, we have but two choices. We can fight against the current, we can paddle hard upstream, or we can turn the bow of our canoe downstream and go with the current, go with the flow, as they say. And of course, going with the flow, for anyone who's been on a canoe on a river, going with the current is a lot easier, isn't it, than going upstream. Because when you paddle upstream, well, first of all, it's a lot of work. Secondly, you don't make anywhere near the progress. So you're working a lot harder and you're making less progress. It's also easy as you're paddling hard upstream to deceive yourself into thinking you're making a lot of progress because the water of the river is just rushing by your canoe. So as we become more and more focused, work harder and harder and harder on fighting the current, we can easily deceive ourselves into thinking we're making progress. But if you look over at shore, you realize you're not making hardly any progress at all. Much better, so they say, to turn the bow of your canoe downstream and go with the current. It's much less strenuous and you make a lot more progress. And when they talk about life as a river, and when they present the choice to go with the flow or not, well, the choice is clear, isn't it? Don't paddle upstream. Go downstream. Go with the current. Go with the flow. Sadly, this analogy, like all analogies, has its limits. And the purveyors of this analogy, well, they leave out a couple practical things that one must consider before one just hops in the canoe and goes with the flow. The first is, of course, that around the bend, there may be some class five rapids or maybe around the bend, something even worse, a huge waterfall. And if you're just kind of going with the flow, well, that doesn't make any sense at all, because in that situation, you best be paddling upstream and hard. If there are a bunch of dangerous rapids or a huge waterfall, I mean, maybe you ought to get out of the river entirely. Maybe you ought not even be in the river. But if you are in the river, you better be paddling hard upstream to, you know, to save your life. And you better hope that God gave you huge muscles. And if he did, you better be grateful. And also, you better hope that God, through the Holy Ghost, told you about the rapids and the waterfall and the man-eating, flesh-eating piranhas and all that stuff before you get to it. Because in that scenario, it turns out life's more like one big obstacle course. And going with the flow and paddling upstream, the objective is to survive, stay intact. So there are some practical considerations one has to think about before you just go with the flow. Of course, we're seeing here that there are some big differences between real life and a real river. One of the most important differences is that real rivers, at least since, I don't know, Lewis and Clark, have been mapped. So before you go on any river, you can look at the map and you can see where all the danger spots might be and you can avoid those, you can portage around those. But no one's mapped out the future of your life. No one can know with great certainty what's around the next bend. It'd be great if there were a map book, like exists for real rivers, that would show us what's downstream, 
where we need to be careful, what we need to avoid, which stretches of your life you can just relax and look around. Because that's what there is for real rivers in the real world. They're all mapped out. So if you get in a real river in the real world and you just go with the flow and you end up being dashed against the rocks or thrown over the waterfall, well, you know, shame on you. You should have looked at the map because we all have a smartphone, most of us anyways, and, you know, there's a map of everything. But no one's lived your life before, and so there is no map. There's no diagram telling you what's downstream. And while you're thinking about all these things, your mind, your conditioned self is just bombarding you with warnings. You don't know what's downstream. You better do what other people tell you to do. People who are smarter than you, people who are more experienced, better be careful, better not take any risk. If you do all those things, you might fail, but at least you're going to fail conventionally, and no one will say, well, the reason you've ended up in such a sorry state is because, well, You went down the river. You went down the path of unknown, and we all told you not to do that. You should have just stayed with us paddling upstream. So if you take no risks in life, if you never let go, if you're just paddling against the current furiously in ways that they taught you, and you're just maintaining your stationary position, you'll at least spare yourself that criticism by others and, frankly, by your own mind, your own conditioned mind. These are the kind of inane things that your mind, your conditioned self, starts telling you subconsciously. And the ultimate conclusion is you cannot go with the flow because going with the flow is unknown, categorically dangerous, will most likely not lead to good ends. And it's much safer to just paddle really hard against the stream because at least there's the delusion that you're making progress. And oh, by the way, as you look around, that's what everyone else is doing. And in fact, you may not make any real progress, but at least you always know where you are, which is in the same place you've always been. And however your mind manipulates you, a conditioned self will always tell you, do not go with the flow. Work harder and achieve nothing instead. There's a great story in the Book of Mormon, two stories actually, that basically convey the same message. The first is of Lehi and Nephi's journey from Jerusalem to the Promised Land. The second is the brother of Jared and his family's journey from the wherever they were, we're not quite sure where they were, to, again, a promised land. And there's some interesting similarities and some interesting differences between these two stories. But let's start with the first one, Lehi, Nephi, Laman, and Lemuel, and their travels from Jerusalem to their promised land. And just as an aside, I know some of you listeners today don't believe in the historicity of the Book of Mormon. And I don't care whether you believe in the historicity of the Book of Mormon or not. I don't don't think it matters because both these stories are incredibly profound just the way that they're told, setting historicity aside. Anyways, we remember that Lehi's in Jerusalem. He has a family, a wife, Sariah. He's got four boys, Laman, Lemuel, Nephi, Sam. may have some girls too. We don't know. They're not mentioned. At the very beginning of the Book of Mormon, God says to Lehi, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, but he basically says, you can stay here in Jerusalem doing what you're doing inside the conditioned cultural bubble that you're operating. So in effect, he says to Lehi, you can stay here and paddle against the stream, try to maintain the status quo, or if you follow me, if you do what I ask you to do, if you believe that I love you, again, I'm paraphrasing, but if you do that, I'll lead you to a promised Land. And that's the extent of the description of this destination that God's offering to Lehi. It'll be a promised land. It'll be flowing with milk and honey. You know, but there's no photos. There's no map. 
There's no guidebook. There's no trip advisor. Nobody's given the promised land ratings. There's none of that stuff. Just the revelatory impulse from God that there's a place better and let's go. God also throws in a little kicker though. He says, and again, I'm really paraphrasing. I'm taking a lot of liberties with the paraphrasing here, but he basically says, and oh, by the way, if you stay where you are, if you choose, if you opt for status quo, um, the Babylonians are going to be destroying Jerusalem in you know, the near future. The Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem, by the way, is recorded in 2 Kings 24 and 25. And the destruction of Jerusalem is a well-documented event. No one disputes that, that this destruction did happen. Anyway, so here's Lehi. You know, years, months, a decade, we're not sure, pre-destruction of Jerusalem. Being told by God, time for you to stop paddling against the current, turn your canoe and let go and go with the flow. And at the end, downstream, there's a promised land. And oh yeah, don't forget, if you don't do that, where you're currently paddling Jerusalem, it's going to be destroyed anyway, so what do you have to lose? That's kind of, I mean, again, I'm really paraphrasing, but that's kind of the invitation. I mean, it's not kind of the invitation. That is the invitation. And it's not an invitation even. It's just a, here's what's what. Here are your real choices. Here's what is really facing you, Lehi. And we see Lehi's reaction. And his reaction is, hmm, okay. Given these parameters that you've laid out, oh God, who's come to me in the column of fire, I'm on board. In fact, I'm more than on board. You know, thanks for telling me. That was Lehi's reaction. Gratitude. Wow. Not only are you not going to kill me, you're what, a promised land? So he's enthusiastic. Sign me up. And then he goes and tells his son, Nephi. Actually, he tells all of his sons at the same time. But Nephi's reaction, his third son's reaction, is a lot like his. Nephi's reaction is, hmm, that, that's what God told you? Those are the choices? That's, that's what we've to look forward to? Well, you know, I like you, Dad. I think I'm grateful because the promised land sounds, first of all, it sounds better than just paddling in place and maintaining the status quo. That, you know, the status quo had no appeal to Nephi, the third son. But certainly the promised land compared to being enslaved and tortured by a marauding band of invading Babylonians, well, that, that's a no-brainer, isn't it? Laman and Lemuel had quite a different reaction. Their reaction was more like our conditioned mind's reaction. Their reaction was the reasonable, rational mind's reaction when faced with the decision between paddling hard against the current, maintaining your position, maintaining the status quo, or just turning the canoe around and heading downstream. Their reaction, by the way, in light of all the conditioning and training and learning and coaching that they had received, well, it... I mean, it was, the, it was the smart, conservative, risk-averse move, wasn't it? And their reaction was this, Dad, are you insane? Again, again I'm paraphrasing, but, but actually not too much in the case of Laman and Lemuel. They basically said, y- you're a visionary man, which was code for, you're, you've been dreaming this. This is insanity. We're not on a river. There is no downstream. We're not paddling against any current. This choice, as you perceive it, is not a real choice. It's a false choice. It's, it's a fantasy. Jerusalem's on good terms with Babylon. Babylon has no interest in coming and destroying Jerusalem. We're making money trading camels or goats or, you know, who, who knows, but uprooting their lives and going out in search of some amorphous, pictureless, descriptionless, promised land. That, that was lunacy. 
By the way, their reaction, the reaction of Laman and Lemuel, who are portrayed as the great villains in the story, their reactions are closer to what our reactions would most likely be. Our reactions, we who live in this uber-modern, data-driven, hyper-rational world, there's a very high probability that our reactions, given the same choices, would be much similar to Layman and Lemuel's. A fact no one inside our community wants to recognize when they read and discuss this first journey of Lehi, Nephi, and Layman and Lemuel. Because we all think, well, if God came and told me to let go, turn the canoe downstream, go with the flow, well, of course I'd do that because I trust God and blah, blah, I'm so obedient, blah, blah. You know, that's how we like to describe ourselves to ourselves. But what we fail to recognize, of course, is that God is doing just that every day. God is inviting us each and every day to let go, to walk with him, to trust, to let it happen, to stop working so hard. And we don't always have the threat of destruction as an additional prod, but if we think about it, we do. Because if we turn down guidance from God, if we refuse to allow ourselves to trust, we're already in a state of destruction. So our reactions on a daily basis are much closer to Laman and Lemuel's reactions. We believe that the path to God in our own promised land is through the field of misery and suffering and exhaustion. We believe we must be worthy before God will even listen to our prayers. We believe in qualifying, only eating that which is derived from the sweat of our brow. What does that sound like? That sounds like we're working really hard, expending a massive amount of energy just to stay in the exact same place. It sounds a lot like Laman and Lemuel's rational response to Lehi's insane proposition that they ought leave everything they know and trust and go with the flow towards the promised land. And the tension for the balance of the story of Lehi and his family's travels from Jerusalem to the promised land, all the trials, all the tribulations stem from this fundamental difference in outlook, in belief, in faith, in trust, and how that faith contrasts with fear and hedging and caution and not letting go. The balance of the story, their travels, their hunting, they're building the ship, they're getting the Liahona, the Liahona not working, the arguments on the boat, all is an illustration, a depiction of the great contrast between faith and fear, between trust and worry, between believing God's promises, believing in God's love, or believing in the projections and the forecasts of your own conditioned maniacal ego, your own mind. There's another interesting lesson about the journey of Lehi and his family, is that the belief in the promised land, the belief in God's largesse, a trust that the destination downstream is good, completely affects one's enjoyment of the actual journey. If you know the promised land's there, it's almost as if you enjoy the promised land during the journey. The journey becomes the promised land. I know this is getting weird and quantum, and but the unmistakable fact, as you read the story of Lehi and his family, is that Lehi and Nephi seem to be having a relatively good time. They seem to see God's hand everywhere, and they seem to almost enjoy it. And Laman and Lemuel were miserable. All they could focus on was how horrible it was, which begs the question, was it a horrible journey or was it an awesome journey? Because they were all on the same journey. I recently hiked the tallest peak, if you can even call it that, the tallest peak in Massachusetts, and it's around 4,000 feet above sea level. That's the highest peak in Massachusetts. So those are, those are the big mountains around here. 
The tallest peak is Mount Greylock out in central Massachusetts. We drove out there. It's about a two-hour drive from my house. And it's a rigorous hike up a fairly steep, rocky trail through thick forests. It takes about two hours from where you park your car to the top. And it was really awesome. I got tired. I sweat a lot. My feet hurt a little bit by the time I got to the top because it was such a rocky trail. The hike was awesome. And then at the top of Mount Greylock, it's an incredible view. It's, it's easily the best view there is in Massachusetts. This fantastic view down to the valley of the Berkshires and the town of Lenox. It's incredible. It felt good to breathe deeply, feel my heart pumping on that same hike. Hiking with us was a 14-year-old boy who lives in my house. And he hated every single step. He grimaced. He felt forced to be there. His legs hurt. He couldn't get a signal, so he couldn't listen to his music. When he got to the top, he didn't really want to look around. So was it an awesome hike or a terrible hike? Was it a fantastic journey for the party of Lehi from Jerusalem to the New World, or was it misery and just torturous? Well, it all starts, doesn't it, with that simple choice to allow and enjoy and let go or to fight against the current. Most of us are convinced most of the time that fighting and struggling, the no-pain-no-gain philosophy, if you will, most of us, most of the time, believe that's the only way, that that's the straight and narrow path. I merely am trying to suggest that maybe it's time to rethink that. There's a second journey story in the Book of Mormon. At the end of the Book of Mormon, the story of Lehi and his family and their journey is the first story of the Book of Mormon. Well, there's a second journey story. It's near the very end of the Book of Mormon. It's the story of the journey of Jared, the brother of Jared, and their families. This story, like the story of Lehi, connects to a biblical event. But whereas the story of Lehi connects to the Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem, the travels of Jared and the brother of Jared connect to the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel, by the way, is referenced in Genesis 11. Okay, so that's a long time ago. That's early, early, early in the Old Testament. By way of reference, Eve gave birth to Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. Noah appears in Genesis 7. Well, the Tower of Babel is Genesis 11. And by the way, these chapters in Genesis, it's not like they're 80 pages each. They're like two or three pages. So the Tower of Babel is a long, long, long time ago. Jared and the brother of Jared are living during that ancient time in a place we're not sure where that place is. And again, I know there are people who have hangups with the historicity of these very early, early stories in the Old Testament. And likewise, I don't, I don't think the historicity of the Tower of Babel or the historicity of any of this is, is the point. I think that's missing the point. The point is the profound story. And in this case, the story is of Jared and his brother. And they're living at the time of the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel, for those who have not read Genesis 11, represents, is a symbol of man's great arrogance. Because the people living at the time begin building the tower because they realize they don't need God to get to heaven. That's what they think anyways. They think, we don't need God. We don't need this plan. We don't need to head downstream. We don't need to do any of this nonsense because we're so smart, we're going to build a tower and the tower is going to take us straight to heaven. So the Tower of Babel was a time of maximum human hubris, a time of peak human ego, a time when in response to the invitations to just turn the canoe and head downstream with the current, the response at that time from the people of the Tower of Babel was, no thanks, we're smarter than you. Our forecasts and predictions are more accurate than yours. Well, at that time, God said, hmm, maybe I ought to confound their language. 
Maybe that might help these people building this tower to understand their limitations and to understand the true choices before them. Well, Jared and his brother catch wind of this, Jared in particular, and he goes to his brother and he says, hey, um, all the language is about to be confounded and none of us are going to be able to talk to each other, which sounds strange, I know. But if you think about it, really not that strange, because what kind of world do we live in right now? We live in a world in which language has been confounded, confused, corrupted, where things do not mean what they're supposed to mean, where language and misinterpretation and reinterpretation, all those things are used as cudgels to beat us into submission, to manipulate us. Well, Jared goes to his brother and says, how about you go and pray to God and ask him if he'll spare us? So that's the first fundamental difference between the story of the journey of Jared and his brother as compared to the journey of Lehi and Nephi. Jared and his brother sought to be guided. Jared and his brother initiated the help. They asked the question. And the question basically, again, I'm going to paraphrase here, but the, the question basically was, is there a better way, an easier way? And in response to this question, God determines to spare Jared and his brother and their families and allows them to maintain the ability to communicate. Again, something that on one level seems almost like a fairy tale. But on, a, on another, when you live in a world where communication is so difficult, as we do now, when you live in a world where communication and connection and conveyance of ideas is so hard, what a blessing it would be to have a language that's not corrupted. Well, after receiving this great blessing from the Lord, Jared, who seems to be the leader and the brains of this outfit, he says to his brother, the brother of Jared, hey, maybe there's a, maybe there's a place that's better than this. Maybe there's a place better than where we're currently living near this tower. Why don't you, oh brother, go ask him? And so Jared's sort of the brains of the outfit. He, he's the one who's thinking this. Hey, why don't we ask if we cannot have our language confounded? And then he asks after the language is not confounded, hey, maybe there's a better place than this. Maybe the Lord will guide us. But instead of Jared himself going and asking the Lord, he sends his brother, the brother of Jared, to go ask the Lord. We can only speculate why that is. Maybe the explanation is as simple as the fact that we all have different talents and different gifts and who knows, but, but whatever the reason, the brother of Jared is the one who's talking to God, but Jared is the one thinking through everything. So Jared, so Jared comes up with this idea to ask God if maybe there's a promised land somewhere. And then he tells his brother to go do the asking. So the brother of Jared does that. He goes and asks God, hey, is there, you know, is there a better place? Can you lead us somewhere? And God said, yeah, there is. There's a promised land for you. You know, gather up all your flocks, get a bunch of seeds, get a, get get some fish, you know, get get some mobile aquariums and bring all your fish and here's you know, build these boats and then God lays out this whole plan for them. And the, what's very interesting about the the travels of Jared and his brother is there's none of this acrimony. There's none of this fear. There's no Laman and Lemuel wrecking everything with their lack of faith. And the question is, well why is that? And the answer is pretty obvious. They initiated the questioning. Jared and his brother asked for the help. They were already at a point where they were tired of paddling upstream. They were tired. They were exhausted. And all they had ever done was maintain the status quo. And the status quo wasn't great. And they were just, oh, they were tired. And so they said, is, is there something just downstream? Can we just go downstream? Is that better? God and God said, yeah, it's way better. And at every step along the way, whenever they had a problem they couldn't solve, they'd just go ask God and he'd, he'd tell them. You know, they built the ships, these boats, and 
Turns out there were a couple problems with the boat. One is they couldn't breathe when they were inside the boats and they put the cover on. It was so tight, so watertight, so airtight that they, if they stayed in there too long, they would have suffocated. So they go to God and they say, okay, we built these boats, but you know, we're not going to be able to breathe in them. So God says, hey, why don't you put a stopper on the top and the bottom? And then when you're upside down, you can pull the, the stopper from the bottom out. And when you're right side up, you can put that stopper back and you can put a stopper on the top. And, you know, you can, and that way air can come in and, and they're like, thanks, God. And then they realize, hey, they're, oh, it's dark in these boats. I mean, you got to wonder how smart these people were. Although, you know, it's Tower of Babel time. So it's a long time ago. Nonetheless, after the air problem, they go back to God with the second problem, which is there's, there's no light in the boats. We can't see anything. And this is when God gets really interesting because in response to that question, he said, well, what, what do you think would be a good solution? And the brother of Jared says, well, how about, hmm, how about I molten some rocks and you touch them? And you know, you being God and all, I bet if you touch these molten rocks that I'm going to make, I bet they'll glow and then they can be like lights. Will that work? How about I do that, God? And God says, yeah, good plan. Let's do that. So now the journey's not just easy, it's now it's getting pretty interesting. Not only that, but increasingly symbolic. Not only that, but increasingly didactic. Because you present God with molten rock, something you've made from your own hands. And it's dead, and it's lifeless, and you turn it over to God, and you ask God to touch it, and God does touch it, and then the rocks glow forever. But what's most interesting about Jared and his brother's journey God never says, "Mm, I don't think you're exhausted enough. I don't think you've done all that you can do. Now you go out there and beat your head against the wall. wall. And once you're worthy and have done all that you can do, then you come to me. Because there's the law of the economy of God. You've heard of that law, right? They talked about that in general conference. Well, there was none of that. I'm not saying misery and suffering doesn't play a role in life. It sure does. Because often it's only after You've become so miserable and you've suffered so much because of your own decision to paddle so hard against the current. It's only after that that you'll turn downstream. But once you're headed downstream, God's not interested in you know, no pain, no gain. That, that's not God's game. I'm not saying that activity and effort are irrelevant either. Activity and effort are enjoyable, are awesome. Much like what made the hike up Mount Greylock was the fact that it was strenuous. That's what made it fun. But God is not interested in these things as prerequisites, as requirements. I don't think God cares about these things. And so when the brother of Jared showed up with some molten rocks and asked God to touch them so they'd glow, that's what happened. Sometimes we're more like Lehi and Nephi and Laman and Lemuel, and God needs to be a little more proactive with us. Give us our Leahonas. Allow us to make mistakes, wrestle with our fears. But there's a point in life for all of us when we realize, either because we're exhausted or we're just smarter than everyone else, that paddling upstream just seems insane. And that's when God's mercy is realized, is perceived by us. I think it's always there. But most of the time, we simply don't perceive it. So sometimes there needs to be an event or two in your life to open your eyes, to give you eyes to see and ears to hear. Something Jesus would often say, after giving a parable, he would often say, those with ears to hear, let them hear. Those with eyes to see, let them see. What he was basically saying was, God's goodness is always there, but you have to notice it. Often suffering and misery and exhaustion and effort are the things that will give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear or we'll at least reveal them. It's at those junctures that maybe we begin to have confidence to ask for the help even 
in specific ways even. And that's when we begin to notice the miracles that are always there. The mercy, the kindness, the guidance, that's always there. But it's hard to recognize it when we're constantly battling with the clamoring of our mind, the clamoring of our ego. So sometimes for some of us, there's a period where we got to learn to deal with that part of ourselves. And until we do, the journey can seem as bad as the hike up Mount Greylock was for that 14-year-old boy I know. So maybe life is a river. Maybe there really are but two choices, to paddle hard against the current or to turn the canoe downstream and go with the flow. What are you doing right now? And what do you really have to lose by turning your canoe downstream? Your answer may be, I have everything to lose. If that's your answer, then you probably do, until you don't. And that moment comes for all of us, I think, in one form or another. There's a realization, I think, for all of us, that we really are on a river of sorts. There really is something wonderful downstream, and life can be a lot better if we just go with the flow. Well, I've gone on far too long. I hope you found something interesting here today. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com. Until next time.